the doctors have gathered your family. You're there in the hospital and you're there to say your final goodbyes. What would you say to your family if you were in that moment? Could you say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Could you be at that point to submit your soul, whatever might happen, to the will of God? To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a quote, but it's far more than a quote. It's far more than something that's familiar to many of us. It's the spiritual centre of what Paul is saying in this passage this morning, the one that was just read to us. And this passage could be summarised in just one word. Confidence. And if you want two words, joyous confidence. This morning what I want to do is ground our souls deep in this reality. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And once we understand what Paul is saying in those few words, we... We, we too will have our confidence fortified, strengthened. Despite the difficulties that we might face, we can have the same confidence, the same joyous confidence that the Apostle Paul had as he faced difficulty, as he was in prison. As we take up this section here from verses 18, following on the last bit of verse 18, Um, I want you to remember that Paul has finished his previous section on a note of joy there at the start of verse 18. He says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. Paul is looking back on his ministry and the challenges to his ministry and those who might set themselves up against the Apostle Paul who don't like him, who see him as a rival. But he can cope. He can cope with that personal animosity, those who despise him, perhaps even look down on him. He can cope with this because at the end of the day, whether they like him or not, Christ is preached. And that's what's important to the Apostle Paul as he looks back on his ministry. But now in this section, Paul turns his mind to the future. Indeed, to his future, and not just his future, the future of they're Philippians and he makes this remarkable declaration of joy-filled confidence in his deliverance have a look there in verse 18 the last section of verse 18 yes I will continue to rejoice see the reality of Christ is not something that just makes sense of his past but Christ is a rock for him in the very middle and present in the very middle of his present situation. He says there in verse nineteen, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me might turn out for my deliverance. Paul is facing the challenge of his own imprisonment, perhaps his own execution, perhaps beatings. He doesn't know what his future holds. But because he doesn't know his future, 
That doesn't mean he can't be confident. In fact, he's confident. He's confident of what? In verse 19, he's confident that it will turn out for his deliverance. What deliverance is Paul speaking of here? Is Paul absolutely convinced that somehow, just as it occurred back in the book of Acts, he will be broken out from jail? Is that his confidence? Is that what he's so sure of? No. I don't think that's what Paul is sure of here. The Apostle Paul, no matter what the circumstances that lie before him, is confident of his ultimate deliverance. The word that's behind that word deliverance there is generally translated as salvation. So what Paul is speaking of here is his final deliverance, his ultimate deliverance, that before God, whatever might be accused, whatever he might be accused of, and even with all the mistakes that he might have made in his ministry, the Apostle Paul is confident that he will be vindicated before God. He will be declared innocent. He will be justified. And Paul was confident of that whatever happens, whatever the next couple of days, weeks or months might hold, whether it be further imprisonment, whether it even be the end of his life, he's confident that God will deliver him ultimately, ultimately save him. And this is typical of the Apostle Paul when he was in jail in Rome. He wrote to Timothy and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So Paul is entirely confident of his ultimate deliverance. But what you don't see here what there's not a skerrick of in the Apostle Paul's heart or mind is any form of self-confidence. He's confident in the work of Christ and in what God will do ultimately, but he's not confident in himself. There's no measure of self-reliance here that he, the Apostle Paul himself, contain the spiritual resources. He could be, and we will later hear in the book how confident he might have been about his background, about his education, his accomplishments, even his level of self-discipline. But the Apostle Paul is not confident in any of these things. His confidence, lay, his confidence lays in the strangest of places, in the place that perhaps you might be surprised. Where does the Apostle Paul... Where does the Apostle Paul's confidence lie? Have a look there in verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ, what has happened will turn out for my deliverance. See what the Apostle Paul is confident of? He's confident that there's a small group of Christian men and women in Philippi who themselves are believers, he's confident that they will be praying for him and that their prayers will be answered and that God will provide for him 
the spirit of Jesus Christ. How does that work? After all, we know that all believers possess the Holy Spirit. Paul is already dwelt with the Holy Spirit. He says in the book of Romans, in chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. Christians have the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Spirit all the time. So what's going on here? Well, we see in the Scriptures that there are times in which Christians experience a, a measure an intensified measure of the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit, which possesses them and, and that they have all the time, does come upon God's people in special ways to empower them in special circumstances, particularly that of great need. And we see that in the book of Acts. We see in Acts chapter 4, verse 9, that the apostle Peter stood before Caiaphas and we read at that moment he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we know back in Acts chapter 2 that he was already filled with the Holy Spirit. But here now as he stands to declare the gospel before these pagan rulers, he's given a special measure of the Spirit. He already had it, but he is filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4 verse 31, the apostles are released and we read that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They've just been in prison. In prison. You would think that they would not want to speak about Jesus because they didn't want to go back to jail. But no, the Spirit comes upon them in this special way to give them a special boldness to speak, to risk going back to where they just come from. In Acts chapter 7, just prior to Stephen's stoning, Stephen stands tall, defiant in his faith. And we read in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The Apostle Paul is confronting a demon, possess, demon possession in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, and what do we read? We read that as he confronts evil, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. There are times in which the Spirit is given in a special measure. And the Apostle Paul here, as he sits in Roman custody, he knows that the Philippians are praying for him. And that as they pray for him, God will deliver a fresh supply of his spirit poured out into his heart to empower him, to strengthen him. And that, his brothers and sisters, those that he shared this fellowship with, that they would be praying for him and God would be answering that prayer, that is his confidence. And that is a remarkable confidence. It's a, it's a confidence that's based in Christ. But it's a confidence that's dependent upon the prayer of others. It's a remarkable kind of spiritual vulnerability, isn't it? That the Apostle Paul...
Paul's situation, his, his spiritual well-being is dependent on perhaps just 20 or 30. Perhaps just the number of people in this room. Perhaps their prayers could empower this one man and his work of the gospel. It's remarkable that he was relying on others, not on his own faith. Yes, his faith was in Christ and founded in Christ. But he was reliant on the prayer of his brothers and sisters to meet this challenge that he faces. And it's the same today. What a remarkable power that we have for one another when we pray for one another. I know we do that a lot. We do it all the time. We do it on Sundays, community groups, perhaps throughout the week. But friends, do we not lose the incredible power that a very simple and ordinary prayer can have in the life of our believer? We need to practice this. We need to see God at work. Our simple, ordinary prayers for one another can move mountains of doubt and disbelief. Our simple and ordinary prayers for one another can strengthen and fortify and encourage one another to such extreme and in such extreme and profound ways. Friends, we must remember that in the simple and in the ordinary. God is at work in powerful ways and we must continue to pray for the encouragement of one another. So the Apostle Paul is dependent on the prayers of his brothers and sisters. And what, what does he think that these prayers will do? Well, he says there in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Can you hear Paul's pulsating confidence in, in those words? I eagerly expect, I hope. Perhaps we lose that with that word hope. In English, when we often, when we mean hope, we often mean we cross our fingers and we hope that this afternoon, the Panthers will win. Okay. <laughs> that, 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 that Parramatta will win. I personally hope Panthers will win. You, you know, it's, it's a vague kind of wish. That's my team. Panthers are actually my team. Um, and I do hope that they win. I do. But that's got very little to do with what the Apostle Paul is thinking of here as he, as he thinks about his hope. Because his hope here, biblical hope, brims with a certainty that's based on the fact that God is sovereign and that he keeps his promises and that he's been keeping his promises all throughout history and he's delivered on those promises so far in the Lord Jesus. And if he's delivered and if he's faithful... And, is, and if he is sovereign, the Apostle Paul can hope and can eagerly expect. It's a hope that's grounded in God. Hope 
that is to do with truth and reality, not, not wishful, spiritualised, naive thinking, but a hope in reality, a hope in truth. And if, if, if God is at work, Paul then knows that he can eagerly expect he can eagerly expect his heart can catch up with the reality. He can eagerly expect what God will do. There's an intense expectation that is sure to happen. And what is he confident in? He's confident that he will be in no way ashamed. I think the Apostle Paul is being reminded, or in fact, I think in many ways he's reminding himself as he writes to the Philippians, but He's writing to himself as much as he's writing to the Philippians. He's confident there in verse 19 that he will be in no way ashamed. Um, There's no hint in the Apostle Paul's mind that this whole Jesus thing, this this thing that he has committed his whole life to, that his former self that he's turned his back on, there's in no way, there's not a hint that it will turn out to be some hoax. No, in fact... The Apostle Paul is confident that his whole body will be a theatre for Christ's glory to be displayed. He says that there, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He doesn't know which way this will go, whether he's released and freed or whether he's executed. But he knows that Christ will be exalted in his body. Because his brothers and sisters have prayed for him and his hope is in Christ. And here is a man who is not naive. This is not a man who is sentimental about fluffy spiritual things. Here is a man who is a veteran of beatings, who's been betrayed by brothers and sisters, who knows disappointment and hardship. And knows indignity and disgrace. He doesn't know what will happen next. It could be any one of those things. His release or his execution. But he is confident that Christ will be glorified. And can you hear how the Apostle Paul is starting to ramp things up? His brothers and sisters have prayed for him. Prayers have been offered the Holy Spirit given a heart full of faith no matter what the circumstances. And here is a climax of where the Apostle Paul is heading in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It must, it must have been stunning to hear those words read in that small Philippian church with that, just that compact, sharp, direct truth, perhaps one of the deepest truths, truths of the Christian life, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul, I think, is saying three things, or at least three things here, when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, firstly, Christ is, 
is his life. In, in fact, it's the start of his life. Christ is in Paul and Paul is in Christ. They are united with one another. His well-being is caught up in Jesus' well-being. Paul will later write that he's in Christ and therefore a new creation. That Christ is the generating, light, the generating reality of his life. To live is Christ. Christ is the start of his life. But along with this, and not just the fact that Paul is in Christ, he's connected with Christ, to live is Christ also means to live like him. So Christ is the start of his life, but Christ is also the model of his life. Here the Apostle Paul, as he faces difficulty and hardship, perhaps even execution, he is literally taking up his cross. And this is not a mere sentimentalism that the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's talking about the very hard reality of the Christian life. To live is Christ. To, to live is Christ. It's a wonderful thing, but to live is Christ is also to live like Christ. Christ is the start of his life. Christ is the model of his life, but Christ is also the centre of his life. It's all about Christ. To him, in chapter 3, verse 10, he's longing to know Christ more, that his whole being in death and in resurrection might be centred around the Lord Jesus Christ. And if this is the start, if Christ is his life, if Christ is his model, if Christ is the centre of his life, then that means something for him. That means that death is not a disaster. It's in fact a gain. To die is to gain. In death, his life is not snuffed out, forgotten. In death, his life, his vitality even, is not reduced. It's expanded and it's fully realised. Do you hear the clarity and sanity of the Apostle Paul's words here? To live is Christ and to die is gain. What these words, these few words do is show up the tragic shallowness of our world. I've been on holidays this week and um, I've seen a little of what we live for. To live is... Well, to live is to recreate, and we do that very well. We have whole systems and industries, people who dedicate their lives to help us to recreate. To live is just to get out of Sydney and to enjoy. To live is to recreate. To live is to fornicate. That's what many of us in our world live for. They live for the pleasure of the other, of sensuality, of indulgence. To live is to recreate, to live is to fornicate, to live is also to accumulate, to just gain more and more things. Here is the Apostle's whole point. That if our life is based on anything but Christ, 
then death is a loss of everything. Those things that we enjoy, those good things. If you think about it, they, they are temporary and they fade and they will ultimately one day all perish. And if our lives are centred around those things that will perish, then what sense is that? No wonder. In our world, there is significant issues around meaning. People are challenged with a sense of meaning in our lives. Why? Because the very things that we live for, recreation, fornication, accumulation, we know We know, we see it every day, those things one day will be gone. Our beautiful kitchens, our houses, our cars, our possessions, our relationships, our holidays even. One day, we'll amount to nothing. And if I live for those things, that's not good. That's not healthy. To live is Christ. Because death cannot destroy what Christ has given us. And to live for him, no evil or no thief or no form of death can destroy. Apostle Paul here, I think, is talking to himself as much as he is to the Philippians and as much as he is to us. Because he goes on there in verse 22 to 24 to speak about death being a glorious, that death is a glorious possession of Christ. There in verse 22. The Apostle Paul has this choice. He can't lose. To live is Christ. To live for Christ and for the Christian, the worst thing can hap- that can happen is the best thing that can happen. To die is gain. The Apostle Paul is pressed in. Death is a more pleasant option there in verse 23. To live or to die, he's not sure, but this t- actually, he is. The scales are tipped there in verse 23. And the delights of death are explored here in that word, depart. There in verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ. That word depart there has this image of a ship leaving a harbour, sailing on its way home. See, the Apostle Paul's longings are for death and the peace and the life that is found in his death. But he won't. He won't choose that as if it was up to him. He won't choose that because not only is he a gospel man, he's an other-centred person too. And here he models what he's going to call on the Philippians to, to do later on in the book, where each of them are not to look to their own interests but are to look to the interest of others. Christ was more important for the Apostle Paul than his own life. And others 
were more important than himself. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that in a world that's full of self-fulfillment, self-indulgence and entitlement. The Apostle Paul does sense, I think, here that he is going to live. And he's going to live because he knows that God knows that this church needs him. He's living for others. And I pray that we might live for others as well. That these words that of the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray this morning that we would invite those words into our souls. Can we say that? Can we say to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do we know it? Is he your life? Amen.